0: Tonight we're continuing on in our study in the Sermon on the Mount, and in the previous weeks we finished chapter 5, and there was a lot in chapter 5. Of course, beginning with the setting of the Sermon on the Mount, then going into the Beatitudes, and then uh, in chapter 5 Jesus speaks about the place of the law, both his relationship to the law, and then the true true interpretation of the law, and, and then Jesus goes on and expands upon a few other points, such as the great idea of loving your enemies and such later on in chapter 5. When we come into chapter 6, we come into more teaching, but it's more of a unified whole, chapter 6. It's dealing with the public life of spirituality that we might live, or the life of spirituality that we live as it would relate to our public life. You'll see what I mean just as soon as we read verse 1. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. In one sense, you could say that this sets the tone for all the rest of this chapter and for this section of Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount. So I'm going to read it one more time. Verse 1, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men, to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now that word, charitable deeds, as it's translated in the New King James Version, verse one, it's actually the word righteousnesses. And it had a primary understanding of alms or financial gifts that you would give, especially to the poor. But it also had a broader meaning of just righteous works. Jesus is telling us that we should not do righteous things for the sake of display or image, we should not do them to be seen of men. Now, in the previous section of the Sermon on the Mount, which we covered in three different sessions on Matthew chapter 5, Jesus clearly showed us God's righteous standard. Do you remember the end of chapter 5? You know, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus said very plainly. And he told us the true interpretation of the law. And then, even before that, he talked about the Beatitudes and the character and the nature of those people who were really kingdom citizens. When Jesus gives us all that, we could leave chapter 5 with the thought wouldn't everybody be impressed if I lived that kind of life? Look at it here I am. I'm poor in spirit, I'm merciful. I hunger and thirst after righteousness, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all throughout Matthew chapter five. And if I lived that way, other people would look at me and they'd say, oh, he's so spiritual. So here Jesus addresses the danger of developing an image of righteousness. And I have to say this, this really hits at me, especially from the culture that I came from. Now, this is true of every culture, But in particular, the culture I came from, from Southern California. It's a very image-conscious culture. How you look, how you appear, what other people think of you, your image, both literally and figuratively, that's what matters. Now, this can bleed over into our spiritual thinking very much, just as much as these terms is, it doesn't really matter... If I am spiritual, what's important is that I have the image of a spiritual person. And this is true in the thinking of many people. Now, it's almost impossible to do spiritual things in front of others without thinking, what is their opinion of me as I do it? You, you pray publicly, right? It's very hard to pray publicly without thinking, what do the people who hear me think of my prayer? And it's very hard to get out of that thinking and to connect it to the fact that they would think better or worse of us depending upon how we pray. Give by the example of public prayer. I pray a very eloquent public prayer and people say, oh, he's so spiritual. Oh, what a, Oh, that man dwells close to God. Or I pray stumbling hesitating, you know, I quote scriptures wrong, on and on and on, and people think, gee, why is this guy praying? Now, I'm aware of that as I pray, aren't I? And this is what Jesus is referring to. Now, this does not contradict the previous command Jesus said. Back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, he said, let your light so shine before men. Now, wasn't he telling us, have a very public spiritual life there? Well, yes and no. This is the difference. The followers of Jesus are to be seen doing good works. But they must not do good works simply in order to be seen. Do you see the difference between the two? Why? Jesus says there in verse 1, otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. The idea is simply this. When we do righteous deeds for the attention and the applause of men, their attention and applause is our reward. It's much better for us to receive a reward from our Father in heaven. Now this brings up a very interesting, you might say ethical and philosophical question. There are some people who say, All that is important is the doing of the deed. My motive, my heart, is much less important than the doing of it. For example, if I save your life, you know, push you out of the way of a car that's coming and going to hurt you or this or that, in some dramatic way, if I save your life, do you really care what my motive was in doing it? Well, he saved my life, but just so that everybody would know he was a hero. You don't care, do you? And there are people who argue that point very strongly, that it doesn't matter what your motive, what your heart is. If you want glory or you don't want glory, that's irrelevant. What matters is what you actually do. But listen, it is true that in some cases it would be better to do the right thing in the wrong way or with the wrong motive than to do the wrong thing. But Jesus' point is still clear if you are here. God cares about how we do our good works, and he cares about the motive with which we do them. Isn't that heavy? Doesn't that pause and make you think? God cares about how, not only the good works we do, but how we do them, and with what motive we do them. And so now Jesus is going to talk about three spiritual disciplines. Actually, he already mentioned in one way the first spiritual discipline in verse 1, but the three spiritual disciplines are giving, praying, and fasting. Now, by the way, these three things were and are the most practical requirements for personal holiness in mainstream Judaism. If you want to know... If somebody was in Jesus' day and is today in mainstream Judaism a good Jew, you ask, do they give to the poor, do they pray, and do they fast? And by the way, what's very interesting to me about this is that these same three activities together with the Hajj and the recitation of the Creed also make up the five pillars of Islam. It's a very interesting thing that that even Islam sees the value of these three spiritual practices, giving to the poor, praying, and fasting. Now, starting in verse 2, Jesus is going to give us some examples of the wrong kind of giving and the right kind of giving. So let's look there, verses 2, 3, and 4. He says, therefore, when you do a charitable deed... Now, it was a custom for some people in Jesus's day and in our own day to draw attention to their giving so that they would be known as generous. That's the reason I want to give, so that everybody knows what a generous person I am. It amazes me sometimes I'll go to the old churches, and it's not just in England, but I've seen a lot of them in England. You go to these old churches in England and you see all over the place names, memorials, not just to people who have died, but people who have given big gifts to the church. And it's all over the place. You could sit... And it could be the most boring sermon in the world, but it doesn't matter because there's a million things for you to look at all around the church. And this interesting name and that interest. oh, look at what they gave and look at what they gave. And other, It's a wonderful thing because if the sermon's terribly boring, you've got many, many things in the building to interest you. And it's just a way to say, look at me, look at how wonderful my gift was. Now today, people don't sound a trumpet to project their image of generosity, but they still know how to call attention to their giving. I never hear one time as a pastor in the community that I lived in in Southern California, that one time a church decided to do a wonderful thing and I thought it was a wonderful thing that they did, but they did it in a wrong way. What they wanted to do was there was a small church in town that was struggling with their building project. And what this larger, more wealthy church wanted to do was they wanted to come alongside this church and they wanted to give them a financial gift that would help them complete their building project. Now, isn't that a good thing to do? That is a wonderful thing to do for one church to give to another church in town. But you know how they did it? They did it on a Sunday morning Right after their service, they made a parade from their bigger church all the way over to the little church, and all the way along, they carried a gigantic check made out with the amount that they were giving. And there were pictures in the newspaper, and this, this gigantic check of the amount that they were giving, look at how much money we get. And I thought, oh, it's a wonderful thing that you did, but you did it in a way that would show everybody how wonderful you are. And this is exactly what Jesus was speaking of. And so, this idea of doing charitable deeds, of giving to the poor, was very firmly established in the Jewish mind. This is one of the things that they did to determine whether or not a person was, in fact, spiritual, and they did it to be seen of men. I remember a friend telling me a story of a a visit he made to Israel once, and there he is in Jerusalem actually in the part of town known as the Cardo. It's sort of a shopping center. And He's telling me about what happened, that, that there he was down in this area of uh, of Jerusalem called the Cardo, and there he is, and a beggar comes up to him and asks him for money. Would you please give me some money, sir? And the man wasn't speaking. He just think he was speaking Hebrew, but the point was clear enough. It was a beggar asking for money. And, and the friend of mine, who was a pastor, said, No, no, I don't want to give you money. Well, just then... This Orthodox Jewish guy came in. The guy said he was a big guy, big Orthodox Jewish guy. You know, one of these guys, it just seems too big for his clothes. You know, big man, big face, big head. And he comes over and he's staring at my pastor friend, obviously very angry with him that he didn't give the beggar anything. And so what did he do? Staring with fire in his eyes at my friend. He took out a big wad of bills and he didn't even look at the beggar. Didn't even look at him. He's looking at my friend the whole time, and he put the money in the beggar's hat, staring at my friend all the time with just fire in his eyes. And what's funny about that is the, the idea was this guy was giving purely to show my friend, this is what you should do. This is how I should give. It was giving to be seen of men. Now, what did Jesus say of that? Well, look at it right there. He says that this is giving as the hypocrites do. Such performers are rightly called hypocrites, which comes from the ancient Greek word for an actor. They're acting the part of pious, holy people. I think we need to examine that word hypocrite because it gets thrown around improperly many times today. It is not having a standard that makes you a hypocrite. Some people believe that. For example, if somebody says Well, you know, um, I believe that it's wrong to get drunk. I believe that. It's wrong to get drunk. Nobody should get drunk. And then you get drunk. Now, that only makes you a hypocrite if you say this. Well, it's wrong for other people to get drunk, but not me. If you excuse your own self, that's hypocrisy. Or if you say, uh, well, um, I wasn't really drunk, if you deny it. Having a standard and not being able to live up to it is not hypocrisy, it's weakness. It's only hypocrisy if you deny that you didn't live up to it. But what these people were doing was putting on a show. No, no. The idea behind hypocrite is that you're an actor that you care about your image and not about the reality. And what did Jesus say of these people? Look at it right there. It says, Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Jesus tells the one who gives so that they can hear the applause of other people that they should enjoy the applause because that's all the reward they're ever going to receive. There's going to be no reward in heaven for the one who did it, for the motive of an earthly reward. It's funny we, over at the Bible College right now, we're we're collecting money for a little missionary thing, and we we just put a little you know coin box out there in the computer room, and we encourage the students to go over there and and put money in it, you know, because it's a good thing for them to give to it. So I went over there and I looked at the coin box because uh, one of the staff members mentioned it, and, and I looked over at it and I picked it up and it felt kind of light to me felt like not much was being put into it. And so there was two or three students in there, and and I said, hey, come on, you guys should be putting something in the coin box. And then I took out a coin, and I said, look, this is how you should do it. And I put it in, and then right away one of them said, you know... The Bible says that you shouldn't be doing your giving to be seen of men. And I said, look, I fully acknowledge that I will get no reward for this that I put in right here. I'm just doing it as an example for you guys. But I understand, no reward for me. And you know what, I believe that. No reward for that thing that I gave, that little coin that I gave at that time. You see, Jesus made it very emphatic by saying that it is all they will receive. It would be better to translate it they have received their payment in full. That's it. That's all you're going to get. The applause of men and nothing more. Instead, Jesus says that if it were possible, you should not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, obviously, he's using a figure of speech, right? <laughs> you, can't, you can't literally do something with your right hand and your left hand doesn't know what it is. What are you going to do? Hide your hand? since it's all connected by your brain, it's really not going to work. But he's using a figure of speech that as much as it's possible, your giving is even to be hidden from yourself. Now again, he's using a figure of speech to communicate because we can't be ignorant about our own giving. What what are you supposed to do? Uh, You know, uh, make your gift and then take some kind of drug that would make you forget about it? That's not the idea at all. No, but you can deny yourself Any kind of indulgent self congratulation. You know, anytime you start thinking, wow, you know, uh, I really do give a lot. Yeah, more than other people. You know, if other people gave the same way I did, boy, it would really be good. You know anything? Every time you start thinking like that, you got to fight that. You got to stop it. You can't indulge yourself and do it for that purpose, for letting other people feel good about you or. Were you feeling good about yourself? Therefore, Jesus says, it would be better that your charitable deed may be done in secret. This brings up a question for a lot of people. There are people who believe that if somebody happens to find out how much you give, then you lose your reward. This can be difficult. There are people who give and they put it on a paper and they send it into the tax department, right? So that they can be figured in with their taxes and all that. And there are some people who refuse to do that because they say, if the tax department knows how much I give, then I lose all my reward. I would respectfully disagree with those people, although I I respect their heart. You see, the issue is really a matter of motive. Are you giving for your own glory? By the way, if you're giving for your own glory... It doesn't matter if no one finds out, right? Let's say you give for your own glory and you're really hoping that everybody will see and every, but nobody sees, nobody gives you the, well, but your motive was wrong and therefore you get no reward from God. But if you give truly for God's glory and not your own, it really doesn't matter who finds out because your reward will remain because you gave for the right motive and indeed, Jesus says, it's very powerful in verse four. He says, Our Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Now notice two things there. First of all, there's a promise that God does see in secret. He sees what we do in secret. The eye of the Lord is always upon us. He sees not only what we do, but he also sees the motives behind what we do. Now again, I'm not trying to say that motives are the only thing that's important. No, I would argue to you that the deed is more important than the motive, but I would also argue that the motive is important as well. You see, Jesus here is pointing out to us the great value of doing good deeds for the glory of God. If you're going to get a reward from man or a reward from God, who is it better to get your reward from? Well, from God. And you should not miss the strength of the promise. These things that are done the right way will be rewarded. You can be sure of it, even when it doesn't feel like it. Listen, you've done a good thing. You've given a good gift. You've done something like that and felt at times that it would not be rewarded. Isn't that funny? Many people give unto the Lord and they find it very hard to escape the mentality that it costs them something to give to the Lord, that that they're spending money in giving to the Lord. But here Jesus says that God himself will reward you openly. You could say that this giving, it's not spending, it's it's investing, because God says that he will reward you openly, and maybe he won't reward you financially in the same proportion, although I believe that generally he will. But the important thing, God promises a reward. So here Jesus is now covered through the first four verses, how the right way is to give, not as a hypocrite, but as a true disciple. Now, He's going to give examples of the wrong kind of prayer and the right kind of prayer. Look at it here, verses five and six. He says, and when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you shut your door, Pray to your father who's in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now it's interesting. Jesus didn't say, if you give, give this way. He said, when you give, give this way in the same way with prayer. He didn't say, and if you pray. He said, no, when you pray. The assumption is, is that the disciples of Jesus will pray. There aren't to be any silent children in God's house. In God's house, his children should talk, and they should talk to him. They should pray. David said something like this in Psalm 32, 6. He said, Every godly man prays unto you. And it's true. Every godly person prays. So get the point. Jesus didn't say, If you give. He didn't say, If you pray. He said, When you pray, You shall not be like the hypocrites. He assumed that his disciples would pray, and it was important that they don't pray in the same manner as the hypocrites. And how did the hypocrites pray? Well, look at what he says. He says, they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets. There were two main places where a Jew in Jesus's day might pray in a hypocritical manner. They might pray at the synagogue at the time of public prayer or on the street at the appointed times of prayer. You see, in synagogue worship, someone from the congregation might be asked to pray publicly. Uh, You know, here's Brother Solomon. Brother Solomon, would you like to pray the public prayer? And Brother Solomon says, oh good, this is my chance to show everybody how spiritual I am. And he's thinking of all the most eloquent words he can say and all the prayers and a long prayer, of course, because everybody knows if you pray a long prayer, it's more spiritual than that. And Brother Solomon's all ready to go. He's all ready with his long, long prayer prayer. And Jesus says, no. Then again, they could do it on the streets. He says, and on the corners of the streets. Now, there were three normal times for prayer, 9 a.m., noon, and three in the afternoon. And at those times for prayer, the the normal Jewish man would stop what he was doing and he would go to a place of prayer and pray. But what if you were out doing your business and it hit noon or three o'clock in the afternoon? What would you do? Well, you could just time it just right so you could be in a very public place and everybody could see how holy your you were. That's what Jesus says there. He says very plainly that they may be seen by men. These hypocrites prayed not to be heard by God, but to be seen by men. And isn't this a common fault in public prayer today? It's very easy to pray publicly in a way that tries to impress or worse yet, sometimes, to teach others instead of genuinely pouring out your heart before God. It's very difficult. I have to say, this is, a very, this is a test for anybody who stands in a pulpit and teaches. You have a tendency to want to review your sermon in your closing prayer. You know, if there were three points to your sermon, well, you want to review each one of them and maybe add a little bit, few more points onto them and just sort of make, you know, a, a, an appendix to your sermon, the prayer. And you know what? That's a thing. That's a temptation I have to fight. When I pray before or after the sermon, I want to just talk to God. I want to shut out everybody else and not necessarily shut them out. Perhaps I'm praying very much as a sense that I'm praying on behalf of everybody, but I want to talk to God and not to them. You have to say, to speak so as to impress people while acting as if I'm talking to God, that is an insult to God. Wouldn't it be an insult to you if I'm talking to you, but I'm really not talking to you at all. I'm really talking so as to impress the people who are sitting over there. I don't really care what I say to you. That's an insult. When we mouth words towards God while really trying to impress others, well then we're we're merely using God as a tool so that we can impress other people. So what does Jesus say? You pray with that kind of heart. He said the same thing he said about giving. They have their reward. Those praying to be seen of men have their reward. They should enjoy it in full because that's all they're going to receive. There is no reward in heaven for such prayers. But he says, but you, when you pray, go into your room. Actually, the word in the ancient Greek, their room, has more the idea of a closet or a place where treasures are locked up. Isn't that wonderful? Your your prayer closet is a place where treasures are waiting for you. The idea is you go, you go away, you get away from people, and you pray with you and God alone, not in a manner that that is looking for other people to, to give you praise, to give you honor, to give you anything. You pray with you and God alone. Now, Jesus, certainly by this, did not prohibit public prayer. I mean, the Bible's full of public prayers, right? Jesus not saying it's wrong to pray in public. No, he's saying it's wrong to pray in public in a way that has a motive to impress man and not talk to God. Now, instead, he says there's a right attitude for you to have in your prayer, and that's in verses 7 and 8. Look, he says, and when you pray... Do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask them. The right kind of prayer does not use vain repetitions, which is any and all kind of prayer, which is mostly words with no meaning. It's all lips and no mind or heart it's very easy for us to do this, right? People fall into these spiritual habits in their prayer. I don't know if you've noticed it in your own public prayer or in the public prayer of other people, but there's certain patterns of speech that people fall into. You know it in personal conversation, right? In personal conversation, people will pick up a a mindless phrase that they repeat all the time. Something along the lines of, you know, I was walking down the street, you know, and I went over to the market, you know, and I looked around for something to buy, you know, and I, I didn't know if I had enough money, you know. And, that you know, it's very common for people to do like that in their speech. Well, some people fill up their prayers to God with such expressions. You know, Lord, praise God. I just come before you now, praise the Lord. And I just ask you, praise God. And things like that. And look, on the one hand, it, you could say that it's an understandable weakness of, of speech. But on the other hand, it can be thought of as a vain repetition words and no meaning now this was very different from the jewish thinking of Jesus' day there were rabbis in Jesus' day who said things like this whoever is long in prayer is heard another rabbi said this whenever the righteous make their prayer long their prayer is heard and they would just pile words upon words. One famous Jewish prayer began like this. They would say, Blessed, praised, and glorified, exalted, and honored, and magnified, and lauded be the name of the Holy One. You know, just piling word upon word. And it's true that somebody can pray long, but pray to the wrong God, even a false God. Don't you find it interesting that in First Kings chapter 18, that the prophets of Baal prayed very energetically. Oh, they were very sincere. They prayed with utmost sincerity. They prayed half the day, crying out, Oh, Baal, answer us, over and over again. It's the only problem they were praying to the wrong God. In Acts chapter 19, a mob in Ephesus shouted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they shouted it for two hours. I don't think God was impressed by the prayer of the prophets of Baal. I don't think God was impressed by two hours of a mob shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. God isn't impressed by the length of our prayers or by the eloquence of our prayers, but he's impressed by the heart of our prayers. True prayer requires more of the heart than of the tongue. And the, the true eloquence of prayer is in the depth of its desire and in the simplicity of its faith. You know, we shouldn't try to impress God or worse, other people with our many words. This is a common complaint of mine when I pray with people in a group. There are a lot of people who don't know how to pray in a group because they pray on and on and on and on. Now look, if you're praying in your own prayer closet and you want to pray that long, go ahead. It might be vain, but at least you're only hurting yourself. But when you're in the prayer meeting and I'm there and you go on and on and on and on, you're putting me to sleep. You're, what? Doesn't anybody else here want to pray? Why do you feel like you've got to pray everything? You're dominating the prayer meeting. Look, it's been said that the first three minutes you pray, we pray with you. The, 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 the second... Three minutes you pray, we pray for you. <laughs> the third three minutes you pray, we pray against you. Some people have this habit, though. There's a great story from the ministry of, of D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was doing some big evangelistic event in, a, in a, a city, and he called up a local clergyman to come up and give the prayer. And this local pastor, you know, was, it was his big moment to shine in the sun. And so he got up and he started praying and praying and praying, and praying, and the prayer would never end. And Moody thought, oh no, I'm losing it. People are going to start walking out of here. What am I going to do? So what Dwight Moody did was he came up alongside the brother, and he put his arm around him, and he said, and as our brother is finishing his prayer, let's sing hymn number 429. (laughs) (laughs) It was a wise thing to do. Now you see, we got to remember, God doesn't measure the prayer of a Christian by weight. Excuse me, by, by length. But by weight. How heavy is it? How much substance does it have? And a lot of times, great men and women of prayer have been people of relatively few words before God. They get to the point, God, this is where I'm at. This is the heart's cry. But they pray with faith and they pray with true fervency. It's all based on a principle there in verse 8, where it says, your father knows the things you have need of before you ask. You see, let's remember, prayer is not designed to inform God as if God didn't know what was going on. Hey God, I don't know if you know what's happening down here, but let me tell you, no, 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 no. No, no, prayer is designed to give man first of all, a look at his own misery, to to humble his own heart before God, to to fill us with desire before God, to to strengthen our faith, and to make connection with the God who loves us and cares about our problems. God knows about the things that we have before we ask of them. And therefore, Jesus says that we should pray in this manner. Now, Jesus, starting in verse 9, gives his disciples a model for prayer. This is the kind of prayer that's marked by close relationship, by reverence, by submission, by trust and dependence. Now, it's very interesting. In Luke chapter 11, verses 2 through 4, we have much, much the same material, very, very similar prayer, almost exactly the same. And some people wonder, well, was this the same occasion? And Luke just records it one time, and I believe this was two separate occasions. I believe it's reasonable to believe that this was not the only time that Jesus taught his disciples on the subject of prayer. In other words, Jesus says, listen, don't pray like the heathen. Don't pray with their long, wordy prayers, with their thoughtless repetition. Here is a model. But by the way, it's only a model. This isn't what you should pray. It's how you should pray after this pattern. And it's wise for us to use this great model prayer of Jesus as a model. So here, verses 9 through 13. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now notice how the right kind of prayer begins. It begins with coming to God as a father in heaven. That's recognizing who we're praying to. We're coming to God using a privileged title that reflects a privileged relationship. It's very interesting that there is no evidence of anyone before Jesus using this term to address God in prayer this way. It's not like God was never called a father. No, he was in the Old Testament sometimes and in Judaism. But no, God was never addressed as father in prayer, or at least not in any records that we have before Jesus gave this great prayer. So he comes to God and he says, our father Isn't that wonderful? Even though the Jews of Jesus' day considered calling God Father to be too intimate, too close, you're not respecting His holiness. Jesus says, no, no. Listen, it's true that God is the mighty sovereign of the universe. He he created all things, He governs all things, and He's going to judge all things, but He is also to us our Father. It's kind of interesting. You say those words. Our Father. God in heaven is our Father. You wonder what image comes to people's minds. You know, some of you grew up with wonderful fathers. You grew up with a father that was, well, whether or not he was godly, he was a good man. Loving, kind, cared about you. Not perfect, but good. And you realize something of the love and the place of a father from the own example you had. Some of you did not grow up with such a father. Some of you grew up with a father who was, frankly, a bad example. And you think, oh, you know, how, how can I call God Father? It's very simple how you can call God Father. Think about it. Even if you had a bad father, you have an image in your mind of what a good father should be, don't you? You do. And, and listen, if you had a bad father, my heart goes out for you. And I pray that God would just bless you and minister to your heart and heal any hurts that you have from the legacy of your bad father. But you can still rejoice in the fact that even though you experienced a bad father, you have an innate knowledge of what a good father is. And God is that good father for you. God is the one who loves you that much. God is the one who wants to care for you as a loving Heavenly Father. Now, He's our Father, but let's not forget, He's our Father in heaven. When we say, in heaven, we remember God's holiness and glory. He is our Father, but He's our Father in heaven. One other thing we've got to notice before we go to the next line of this great prayer, we notice as well that Jesus says, our Father. Isn't that interesting? He didn't say, my Father. No, wouldn't that almost made more sense? But I think what Jesus is getting at in this prayer, because all the time in this prayer, it's social. The singular pronoun is always absent. It's never I or me or my. It's ours in this prayer. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our trespasses. Our Give us this day our daily bread. It's a social prayer. It's as if when we enter the presence of the Father, we pray as a member of a great family. Here we are, God, coming before you. God is my Father, but He's yours too. And that makes us related to one another, right? It's really wonderful how Jesus emphasized that. Our Father. He says, Our Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You could say that the right kind of prayer has a passion for God's glory and God's agenda. His name is the one that's going to be hallowed, that is made sacred, not your own. You care about his name, not your own. You care about his kingdom. What's the prayer? Your kingdom come, not my kingdom come, right? Your will be done, not my will be done. You see, everybody wants to guard their own name, their own reputation, but we've got to resist the tendency to protect and to promote ourselves first, and instead we put first God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. What if, through your life, God's name could be marvelously glorified by your name being drugged through the dirt. Are you okay with that? Well, it's easy for me to say it. If I was actually put in that situation, I might think twice, right? But isn't this the heart of a disciple? Look, if the master is glorified, the servant is satisfied. It's your name, God, I care about. It's your kingdom I care about. It's not my kingdom I'm trying to advance. It's your kingdom, It's your will that I care about, God, not my will. Jesus wanted us to pray with the desire that the will of God would be done on earth as it is done in heaven. Now think about it. In heaven, there's no disobedience, right? Are there any obstacles to the will of God in heaven? None whatsoever. Now on earth, there is disobedience. And on earth there are at least apparent obstacles to the will of God. But the citizens of Jesus' kingdom want to see his will done on earth just as it is in heaven. And then he says, your will be done. A man can say that phrase in a lot of different ways, right? He can say, your will be done, in a sense of fatalism and resentments. In other words, Lord... You're going to do your will, and there's nothing I can do about it anyway. Your will wins, but I don't like it. Your will be done. It's like a fight between a husband and wife, right? Okay, fine, we'll do it your way. Right? Don't some people have that conversation with God? Listen, that's not the heart of your will be done. Your will be done, more has the heart of perfect love and trust. It says, "Lord, do your will because I know that it's the best, and change me where I don't understand or accept your will." In a way, I think about this prayer, and I think it's a funny prayer, almost, don't you? Lord, do your will. What, what do you mean? Isn't God going to do His will anyway? Right? Lord, Lord, I just want to tell you, Lord, do what you want to do. Isn't he going to anyway? Or is it the problem that God can't accomplish his will himself unless I give him my, you know, yes, Lord, go ahead and do it. Oh, well, I was waiting for you, David, before I, I went ahead and did this. No, that's not really the sense at all. Listen, God is more than able to do his will without my approval without my cooperation, without my prayer. But He invites the participation of my prayers, of my heart, and of my actions. He wants me to see His will done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, now it's funny. When we pray this way, when we pray just as Jesus told us to pray, with this idea of Uh, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray with that attitude, that's a prayer that honors and glorifies God, right? But it also transforms me. I can't say those words and think those thoughts without being affected by them. Yes, Lord, I do want your kingdom. I lay aside my own. Yes, Lord, I, I, I do want your will. I lay aside my own. Now look, I need to be very careful when I say this. I don't like it when people act as if the main point of prayer is self-improvement. Some people say this, Well, I don't really know if God answers prayer, but I know it helps me. Listen, I know God answers prayer. I know that there's a loving Father in heaven who hears our prayers and responds to them, but I also believe that it changes me. I also believe that it affects me. And I think that's wonderful. I think it's good to understand that prayer, when it's done the right way, is transforming. You know, Paul used such a beautiful expression in one of his letters. He talked about us being transformed as we behold the face of the Lord face to face as if in a mirror. Now we read that and we say, oh, in a mirror it means we see the face of God crystal clear, right? Mirror clear, that idea. No, 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 no. Because in the ancient world, mirrors weren't that great. In the ancient world, mirrors were made out of polished metal. And have you ever looked at your face in polished metal? I mean, you can see something, but it's kind of wavy and distorted. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, listen, we don't see God's face perfectly, but we can catch a glimpse of it. As we behold his face, as we behold him in prayer and in fellowship with him, what happens? We're transformed. And this is how it's done. It's done through prayer. So this transforming work, it continues on. Notice here in the next verses, he says, starting at verse 11, Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. Now I like this. The first requests, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those are requests but they're not asking for anything for me, right? Those are all out of a concern for God's glory and God's agenda. But yet, it says now, Lord, I need some things too. I I want your kingdom, God. I want your will. I want your name to be hallowed, Lord, and not mine. But God, I need some things too. Won't you please give me this day my daily bread? You know, when Jesus spoke of bread, you know what he meant? Do you know what the real meaning is behind that concept of bread? It's bread. What you would actually eat. Christian commentators have a hard time with this. Through the centuries, they've said, well, it couldn't mean bread. I mean, why would Jesus talk about bread in such a majestic prayer like this? He must mean the bread of communion, the Lord's Supper. He must mean Jesus himself as the bread of life. No, he, he must mean the word of God as our daily bread. No, I tell you again, he means bread. He means what you need to live on. Listen, God cares about our everyday things. And we should pray about our everyday things. Well, what do you need every day? You, well, you need bread every day. You need some kind of food every day. You should pray about your everyday things. So give us this day our daily bread. You know what? That really spoke to an ancient culture where most people lived on a a way that they were paid for their work one day at a time. One day at a time. I work my job. I get paid. Uh, Can I come back tomorrow? Yeah, come back tomorrow. You, you didn't know if you had a job from day to day. You'd come back the next day. And maybe, well, we don't need you today. Sorry. Uh, well, do, do I eat today? Uh, I guess not. Give us this day our daily bread. You see, it, it's the attitude that says, I need you every day, God. Now, by the way, point out, this is a prayer not for cake, right? But for Bread. Not for you know a steak dinner, but for bread and and the, the idea is that God wants to minister to our needs, and he 's under no obligation to minister to our greeds, the things we 're greedy for, so no Lord, I need you I, I need you for my said, give us this day, our daily bread, and see the next line? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors I, I think it 's fascinating that sin is represented here under the idea of a debt. And you have many such debts. That's why it's in the plural. You see, God made man so that we would live to his glory and obey him. We have an obligation to God. Do you understand? This is an idea that is almost completely lost in Western culture this day. That you owe something to God. You have a debt to To God. Now, if you think about it in those terms and you think about how many people that walk on the streets of this city or any number of cities every day, if you were to go up and have a conversation with them and ask them, do you have a concept that you have a debt to God, that you owe him anything? Most people are completely insensitive to the idea that they owe anything to God. God may be up there, probably is. I don't owe him anything. He leaves me alone. I leave him alone. I have no obligation to him. No, 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 no. You have a debt to God. You have an, if nothing else, you have the obligation to God that a creature owes to its creator. He made you, He's the God of the universe. You have an obligation to Him. And then your sins against Him put you in greater obligation, in greater debt before God. So forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Wow, God, uh, forgive me in the same proportion that I forgive others. Do, do you really want to pray that prayer? Do you really want to pray? God, I ask you to forgive me just in the same way I forgive other people. There are many people who would not pray that prayer because if they prayed that prayer and God answered it, they'd go to hell, right? Because they don't forgive other people. They, they don't deal with other people as if they themselves were a person who had been forgiven. But Jesus is going to talk about that a little bit more later. So we'll move on to the next idea where he says, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Temptation here has the idea of a test, not a solicitation to do evil. You know, one of the great promises of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that God is faithful and just and will not allow you to be tempted beyond your able, but will always give you a way of escape in every temptation. Listen, that's a wonderful principle, and it's true. God has promised that he will not test us or allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able. Then why pray for it? Because listen, the scriptures are filled with promises that God expects us to receive in faith by prayer. Do you understand that principle? That when God promises something us something to us in the scriptures, the idea of his promise is not given to us to make us passive. Oh good, God promised it so I don't have to do anything with it. No, the idea of God's promise is given to us to invite our response and our taking hold of that promise in prayer. That's why we pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us um, from evil. And then, now in the King James Bible... It's right here in verse 13 where it says, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. The right kind of prayer praises God and credits to him the kingdom and the power and the glory. There is some dispute as to if this closing line, this doxology, is in the original manuscript that Matthew wrote or if it was added later by a scribe. Most modern biblical scholars believe this line was a later addition. And to be honest, I, I don't know enough about the arguments with the manuscript evidence on either side to give you a, an opinion from myself. But just to let you know that, that that last line that says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That is not included in many manuscripts. But nevertheless, the idea is true. Right? Anybody who has prayed just as Jesus has described. Isn't that one going to pray in a way that cares about God's kingdom, God's power, and God's glory? So, so even if it was added, it's not necessarily out of place because the thought is very much in line with other aspects of the prayer. Let's take a look at verses 14 and 15, and with that, we'll, we'll conclude this evening. I. I kind of had the dream that we might get through the whole chapter, believe it or not. I actually thought that, but it's, it's just not going to happen. So we'll conclude with these two verses, verses 14 and 15. He says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Listen, it's very simple. Forgiveness is required for those who have been forgiven. We are not given the luxury of holding on to our bitterness and our hatred of other people. God has shown us how great our sin is against Him. And since God has shown us that, What other people do to us might be real. I'm not saying it's not real. I'm not saying that they didn't sin against you. They did. But what I'm saying is that it doesn't compare to what God has forgiven you of. And therefore, as someone who has been forgiven so much, you have an obligation to forgive others. You see, there's a problem. If you're unforgiving, It means that either you don't appreciate the forgiveness that God has given you, and some people don't, or you don't appreciate the greatness of your sin that needed such a great forgiveness. One of those two is a problem. And so he says, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Now, this is a a problem with some people. Some people believe that this teaches salvation by forgiveness. Okay, if I want to be saved, I must forgive. I don't think that's what Jesus is teaching here. First of all, let's remember, the Sermon on the Mount does not deal with salvation as such. This was not Jesus' message telling us how to be saved. This was Jesus' message telling us how to live when we are saved. It's the life of for his disciples. I mean, isn't that evident? Just from the prayer that we have, our Father in heaven, uh, hallowed be your name. That is the prayer of a disciple, of somebody who already is a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, the question comes, is Jesus saying that God requires us to forgive others first before we can be forgiven? And I don't think that's what he's saying. I think if you want to put it in terms that maybe you'll understand, you could call this a classic chicken and the egg scenario, right? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, you could debate this. Actually, from the book of Genesis, I can tell you with great authority, the Bible tells us that the chicken came first. It says that God created the animals and then they reproduced. But apart from that settling the issue biblically, all I'll just say is this. God's forgiveness of us And our forgiveness of others are companions. They go together. Now, in point of fact, God's forgiveness of us comes first. And we forgive others because we are forgiven. But, let's be realistic, it doesn't always feel like that, does it? Sometimes it feels like it. When you're in that struggle to forgive somebody else, doesn't it feel like, oh Lord, I really want to be forgiven by you. So I will forgive this other person. Doesn't it feel like that sometimes? Well, Jesus knew that. And that's why he speaks to us in these terms. I love it. Sometimes the Bible speaks to the theological fact. Theological fact, you are forgiven first, apart from your forgiving or not forgiving other people. And then you're expected to forgive. That's a theological fact. The way it feels to us sometimes in the daily struggle that we live oh Lord, I really want to be forgiven, so I will forgive. And that's how Jesus is speaking to us. You know, there was a time when I felt a much greater right, theoretically, to hang on to unforgiveness until people repented before me the right way. I think God has taught me otherwise through the years. And it's taught me through a lot of very powerful lessons that, listen, I have been forgiven so much from God. I just am to forgive. It's not always easy. And and listen, the kind of forgiveness that Jesus talks about right here, isn't it true that it's a battle? How many times have you experienced that? Oh, Lord, I just give it up. I forgive that person. Lord, they hurt me so bad. Just like Joseph said, Lord, they meant it for evil, but you meant it for good, Lord. And God, I'll just see that. I'll forgive them, Lord. And you do. You really, really do forgive them. And you just have that wonderful freedom of forgiveness until the next day. Right? Have you experienced that? Listen, don't feel defeated when that happens. That's how it is. And so what do you do? You just give it to the Lord all over again. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's enough for us to take notice, right? Unforgiveness is not something to play around with in your life. It's something to take seriously. And maybe that's what some of you need to leave with here tonight. God... I don't want to have this unforgiveness. Help me to clear it away. But we've covered the two first big points, right? I, I said we'd talk about giving, and he talked about that in the first several verses. And then he talked about prayer, the right way to pray, right? We don't give to be seen of men. We don't pray to be seen of men. But then Jesus showed us the right way to pray, even giving us a model prayer with an emphasis on forgiveness. Next week when we get together, We're going to start right up again here at verse 16 and talk about the third spiritual discipline that Jesus linked together with this, fasting. We'll get together with that and start on that next week. But let's pray right now. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you love us enough to challenge us to do what's best and what's right for us. Lord, it is best. It is right for us to be forgiving. And so, Lord, you impress upon us in the strongest terms possible that we need to do that. Help us with it, Lord. Help us to live our spiritual life in a way that really gives you glory, Lord, and isn't trying to attract glory unto ourselves. Help me with that, Lord. I need that help. Help me, Lord, to not be satisfied with a spiritual image, but only with the spiritual reality before you, Lord. I don't want it to be said of me what was said of that church in the book of Revelation, Lord, that they had a name, that they were great. But it was not true. No, Lord, make us real before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.